Thank you for listening to this message from Northwest Hills Community Church in Corvallis, Oregon. You can learn more about our church at nwhills.com. Today, Worship Director Justin Jackson continues a series called What is Going On, where we read the entire Bible in a year. The book of Judges outlines a period in Israel's history when they had no king and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Unfortunately, it does not go well and God's anger gets regularly kindled. In many ways, it doesn't sound much different than today. However, we can be a part of a better kingdom that brings lasting peace. Which kingdom will you be a part of? After the message, read the book of Judges. Also, check out nwhills.com slash hub, H-U-B, for additional resources like book overviews, reading plans, and application questions. Now, here's today's message. Man, so good. Uh, it's always hard when I preach and I have to cut off the fellowship time. That's like the hardest thing in the world is like, when you guys are having a great time talking with one another and my wife is all the way across the room talking to her friend and I'm like, all right guys, everybody listen to me now. Um, no. And that picture, I love that picture. Uh, those shades, that's been a while since I've seen those shades. Those are, if for anybody who's wondering, those are those like foldable uh, sunglasses that you get from the eye doctor when you get your eyes dilated. Uh, when you're, and you need to drive home, you know. When you're me and you have really thick, giant glasses like this, uh, the little fold-on glasses, don't, sunglasses don't work, so that's what I've used in the past, but they broke because they were free from an eye doctor. <coughs> um, anyways, sorry, hi, I'm Justin. Um, I'm the worship director. I normally play music, but man, I have a freaking fantastic team uh, of interns and worship team that can play amazing, even when I'm not on the team. It's, it's great, yeah. Lexi, Kylie, great job. It's really nice and kind of terrifying to know that your team can do phenomenal with or without you. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm preaching this morning. We're, in, we're about seven weeks into our uh, new theme for the year, and our theme is our series. And, and uh, you probably saw it on your way in when uh, you looked at the lobby, on, on the wall in the lobby. Our theme is this question, what is going on? Right? Um, and uh, if this is your first time setting in foot in a church, um, my guess is that uh, you've probably asked that question a couple times already today. Um, because, I, man, I, if maybe I'm just, the, as the music guy, this is a thing that I do that nobody else does, but I often think about the fact that, like, I feel like in normal life, we don't really sing in public except for, like, church and maybe karaoke. I think those are the only places where that happens. And so it's got to be weird when somebody walks in and the music starts playing and people start singing, they're like, what is happening right now? Um, I don't know, maybe I'm just, I'm the only one who does that, but um, anyways, our theme for the year, right, is what is going on, and our goal is to try to answer that question, right, through reading through this book, right, the Bible, what we uh, consider to be the Word of God um, given to us, and I just want to say up front, you know, I, I know that, I understand that if there's a tension for you today, um, that you're coming in here and you don't believe that the Bible is God's divine word and that it has the truth for us, I get it. Like, there's a tension there. Like, we believe something. You may not believe that. Man, come talk to me. Come talk to Josh. Talk to anybody on our leader team. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to trust in God and specifically to trust this is his word. But that's what we're doing through this series. We are going through um, God's word. We're about seven weeks in, and let's be honest, if you've made it through, like, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you can probably make it through anything. Um, <laughs> because those books are hard to read. Um, they're great, don't get me wrong. I, I'm, they're not bad <laughs> books in any way, but they're hard to read. Um, and as a side note, I also would love to mention, like, I think it's kind of nice that I'm like the, what's the word I'm looking for? Least experienced uh, preacher on the team, because uh, what happens is, you know, we, we set up this preaching schedule, and, you know, Josh, usually, it's mostly Josh, I think Ron helps him out now that he, Ron's here. Um, 
me and Gary don't really, but we get to preach sometimes. Um, but we set up this preaching schedule, and it feels like most of the time, like, I get a lot of the really easy passages. Um, like, I was joking with Gary. I was joking. Josh is laughing over here. I was joking with Gary uh, earlier this week, like, he, and he was joking with me, like, man, you got judges, like, these epic stories of these guys who, like, fought the Philistines and all that stuff. I got the one where the people just walk around for 40 years. Um, <laughs> And then earlier in our series in Hebrews, like, I got to do the faith of, like, Moses, right? This, like, big biblical character, epic story again. Uh, you don't even really need to read the Bible to know of Moses because there's, like, movies about him and stuff. And then Gary got, like, Abel, the guy who died for his faith, like, you know, who was killed by his brother, right? Like, I don't know. I guess it just pays to be the young guy. <clears throat> um, so what is going on, right? It feels like uh, you turn on the TV or swipe through your news feed, and everyone is asking this question right now. Like, man, what is going on in the Ukraine right now? War crimes are happening in the Ukraine. What, what is going on in Africa with the Ebola breakout, right? What is going on with gas prices? What in the world is going on with the gas prices right now, right? And um, the problem is, here's the problem, everywhere you see an answer to one of those questions, it's contradicted by like a million other answers, Right? You know, I ask the question, like, man, what is going on with gas prices? And people are like, oh, it's the Republicans' fault. No, 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 the Democrats and the taxes. No, it's Gen Z. They're the worst. No, 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 the, the baby boomers are all retiring and they're making it bad for everybody. Like, we, that's the tension, right? Like, thank you for the few people who laughed at that. <laughs> um, <laughs> that's the tension we feel, right? Like, everybody has a different answer for everything. Um, the tension is, for the last few decades, we've been told that everything is relative right? Truth is whatever you want it to be. I have my truth. You have your truth. Um, and everybody's like a little bit right. Don't, just don't say anything offensive. Um, and there are no absolutes. But unfortunately, this way of thinking tends to look less like this straight road that we all walk down together and more like this swirling ocean of opinions that we all just get tossed into, right? And living in this swirling mass of opinions, right, it's resulted in a lot of us getting hurt. We leave it hurt, we leave it lonely, and we leave it unsatisfied, right? Do you guys, do you guys feel that? I, I certainly feel that tension in our world right now. And this morning, our goal, by looking in the book of Judges, is to see, okay, how do we answer what's happening right now with this book? So, we're going to be in the book of Judges this morning. Um, to understand the importance of Judges in the Bible, it's important to remember why God chose the nation of Israel, like all the way back in Genesis. Okay, see, God's plan for Israel uh, was to be a nation set apart. Right? So that they would show the rest of the world who God was, that he was holy, that he was good, and that life with him was better than you know, life lived in sin. Right? And the Israelites were meant to show the rest of the world that there was a better way to live, and that this way, was, this way of living was God's way, and it was life with God. Right? That was the whole point. It was the point of the Abrahamic covenant. It was the point of the plagues. It was the point of the exodus. It was the point of the promised land. Right? Like Stick with God, serve God, trust God, and receive the good life, not the human version of the good life, not the prosperity gospel, but life with God, which is a better life than anything we can come up with in our own heads. Now, Judges, as a story, unfortunately, shows us very clearly and repetitively uh, what happens when we don't listen to God and when we don't trust and follow him and what happens when we decide we just want to live like the rest of the world. Um, and the entire book, from start to finish, uh, can be summed up in, in one single sentence. It's repeated uh, multiple times throughout the book. I think it's four times. It, there's a different version of it that appears every time. And it, it perfectly represents both the state that Israel finds it in, and that sense is going to be the backbone of our study today. So it's found in Judges 17, 18, 19, and 21. We're going to be in Judges 17, verse 6. So if you want to turn there in your Bible. Um, I will invite you to stand and read this with me. I'm going to read from my real Bible here. 
Um, and man, let me just say, I, one of the reasons we're standing, I mean, I know we do this a lot, but one of the reasons we're standing today specifically is because if you, like, fall asleep and the whole rest of the sermon, you don't get anything else from the rest of the sermon, I would implore you, just let this sentence that we're about to read from God's word just float around in your head all week, right? Like, if, if nothing else, just let this sentence, just mull it, just mull it over. Just re- let it uh, be in your head all week because it's going to help you understand what it means to live right now. So, uh, Judges 17, verse 6. Um, it's going to be on the screen behind me as well. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Very short word of the Lord. You guys can have a seat. Um, okay, now, I want the sentence to frame our study this morning. Um, but to do that, I'm going to have to rearrange it a little, and I'm going to need to add a little context. So, um, so first I want to talk about like, the context of how Israel like, got here in the first place, how they got to this point that we just read about. You know? And, and we're going to call that the tragic why of obedience, and I'm going to explain that in a second. Then, after that, we are going to talk about the judges um, themselves, and, and we're going to talk about this concept of what it means to live, uh, to do what is right in our own eyes. And then finally, at the very end, um, I want to talk about the importance of having a kingdom uh, with a king or what it looks like to have a kingdom without a king. So three main points, uh, the tragic why of obedience, the judges doing what is right in our own eyes, and number f- finally, um, the kingdom without a king. All right? So point number one, let's get, let's get some context. Uh, we read last week in Joshua and two weeks ago in Deuteronomy, if you've been reading through um, with us, that God gives his people some very specific instructions about how they are to enter the promised land. I'm just going to read from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 5 real quick here. Um, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering, take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, Seven nations more numerous and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. So God tells them exactly what to do, right? And he also tells them what will, not might, what will happen if they don't. Now, I want to pause for a second. I just want to acknowledge, like, this is a really, really tough command to follow. Right? Not just ethically. I, you know, I think a lot of times for us living in the day and age that we live in now, we immediately hop on like the ethical ramifications of like, oh my goodness, wiping out an entire people group that's like including women and children. Wow. But also like think about this even just like from a logistical standpoint. Like this is nearly impossible. This is so hard to do. Like think about the one guy in the army who flees during the battle and hides behind a rock and the Israelites are supposed to be like, how are we supposed to find that guy, God? Like it, do you, you can give us a compass that points directly to him or something? Like It's a really, really difficult pill to swallow. But what you need to understand about God from this command is this. We see a list of people groups here, and it could be easy for us to make the assumption that God must really hate those people. And church, that's just not true. Right? God loves humanity. God created humanity, right? Like, God's war here isn't against humanity. 
It's against sin, right? God has always been about saving his people from their sin, from the very beginning, right? But sin, like a virus, is not very easy to eradicate, right? Sin doesn't have an army for you to outmaneuver, right? Sin doesn't have a fortress to besiege. It doesn't work that way. God knows how sin works, right? Because just one little bit of sinful influence and an entire society can be corrupted just like that, right? Sin has completely engulfed these Canaanite cultures, and the cost of destroying sin is very high, right? Spoiler alert, if you want to know the cost of destroying sin, wait till the Gospels, right? God knows how high the cost of destroying sin actually is. But God loves his people. He doesn't want them to suffer. And every, every command he gives throughout his word comes from a desire to end human suffering and to destroy sin. Now, very quickly, you know, we're going to discover that Israel does not obey this command. Um, and God's promise of what would happen should they fail comes to pass pretty much immediately. Right? Like, I'm going to be reading a few verses scattered throughout chapters 1 and 2 just to point, uh, just to paint a picture of what is going on in Israel immediately after entering the promised land. So, uh, first 26 verses, uh, we get this little story of how uh, the tribes of Judah, uh, Simeon, and Joseph, um, they go through and they actually start doing exactly what God said, right? They start clearing out the Canaanites um, through the lands that they were allotted. Um, uh, there's actually this really cool little scene where uh, Simeon and Judah kind of team up, which I think is great. Hey, help me out here. Um, and uh, we also get a scene that reminds us of the story of Rahab where a uh, Canaanite spy and his family are actually saved um, and they are spared because they helped the Israelites. But then we read in Judges 1, chapter, 20, or, uh, ch- chapter 1, verse 27. And I'm going to paraphrase here because reading all these names would take forever. Um, Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of their land, for the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in that land. And when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor and did not drive them out completely. And Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of their land, so the Canaanites lived among them, but became subject to forced labor. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of their land, so the Asherites lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land, for they did not drive them out. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of their land, so they lived among the Canaanites and the inhabitants of the land. Nevertheless, the inhabitants of their land became subject to forced labor for them. Okay, so not a great start, right? Like, not only did the Israelites not do what God commanded them to, to completely wipe out, drive the Canaanites from the land, but they actually subjugate them exactly the same way they were subjugated in Egypt. From there, things get even worse, right? In Judges 2.11, we read, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. That's the gods of the Canaanites. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. No way, really. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. And whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Really? You don't say. And from here, things just continue to spiral downward. Even after God sends the judges, right, things just keep getting worse. Peace doesn't last. And what was supposed to be the promised land, right, is quickly transformed into this, like, Wild West, Mad Max, Thunderdome society. 
Does anybody get that reference? Uh, Ron was telling me that not a lot of people would get thunder. Thank you. All right, some movie buffs over here. He's probably saw Fury Road. Okay, that's fine. Um, but it transforms into this like chaos, this world of just chaos, right? The promised land is, is turning into this place where, um, oh, man, I lost my spot here. Um, yeah, Mad Max means Thunder's own society where the weak and the vulnerable, they're exploited, right? Tribal warfare is constant and things like peace, safety, and security are never lasting. For 400 years, this cycle happens over and over and over again. Violence, fear, brutality, every man for himself. I think of this. Uh, things get so bad that in the book of Ruth, uh, which takes place during the time of the judges, we, we actually studied Ruth uh, last year, like right around this exact time period. Um, uh, book of Ruth happens, and in the book of Ruth, we have this scene where Boaz, he's warning Ruth, right? He says, uh, you need to glean in my field because um, I've instructed my workers not to touch you. Which, what it really means is, is the obvious implication here is that if Boaz is giving his workers specific instructions not to harass the women, the women gleaning in his field, right, is that regularly women gleaning in a field were in danger of being assaulted by the field hands. That's what things have come to, right? And really, at the end of the day, you can look at the entire book of Judges as this epic tragedy describing exactly why we need to obey God. Right? Why should I follow God's commands? This is why we're living it right here. Just read the story, right? And I call this the tragic why because it's not the only why. In fact, I wouldn't even call it the most important why. If there was like a why for obeying God that I think was like the most important, I think it would really boil down to like, I love God, therefore I want to obey him, right? That I think is the most important. But it's one of the whys, and I call it the tragic why because the consequences of Israel's failure will absolutely break your heart this week. You'll read gut-wrenching stories of Israel enslaving the people around them. Um, you'll read about one of the judges who sacrifices his own daughter as a burnt offering. Uh, you'll even read about a young woman who is assaulted to the point of death by an entire town of men, Israelite men, not Canaanite men. Right? And you're going to wonder, God, what is going on? And then you just have to remember, this is, this is the Israel that abandoned God. Right? God hates this. God wanted to avoid this. Right? God's command to Israel to destroy the Canaanites was designed to stop this. Right? You were supposed to be different, Israel, but you failed. And now no one can tell you apart from Egypt and the Canaanites and everyone else. <clears throat> so, that's the situation we find ourselves in pretty quickly into the book of Judges. Uh, now, God, in the midst of all this, he does not permanently abandon Israel, right? As much as they want him to, as much as they want to just leave him behind, you know, Yahweh is still in the business of saving his people. It's been his plan all along. He's going to make it happen, but in the meantime, uh, and this is so important, in the meantime, meaning that the judges, they are not the final solution, right? Even the kings that God will eventually put in power in Israel, right? They're not the final solution either. God is bringing about his kingdom, the restoration of humanity to himself, but in the meantime, we get the judges. And I want to clear up some misconceptions about <clears throat> what the title of like judge means in this book, because um, except for Deborah, uh, none of the like judges uh, in the book play like a judicial role. Like they don't hold court. They're not court judges. Um, a better word for them would be like deliverers. Uh, you might even use the word saviors. They save God's people. God raises them up to save Israel from various um, physical problems that they have. They've got people um, putting them in distress. Um, technically, you could say they are like God's judgment on Israel's enemies. And so in that way, God is judging uh, Israel's enemies through the judges. Um, and uh, <clears throat> 
but they also mainly act as Israel's like political or military leaders, um, and not even really Israel's spiritual leaders, as you'll find as you read the book this, this week. Um, now, I'm not going to spend a huge amount of time on like one particular judge, because one, we'd be here for three hours, uh, and two, uh, they actually, you read the book, and they actually start to really blend together. Like a lot of their stories start to sound very similar, because this cycle keeps happening and happening. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm going to give us three traits um, that we're going to use as a framework for like studying the judges, okay? And uh, when you're reading this week, and then when you meet with your community group, and you talk about the judges and their stories and things like that, which you should do, um, I want you to look at these three character traits of each of the judges and try to find them in each of the judges' stories. So here are the tra three traits. We'll put them on the, on the screen here. Uh, number one, they're flawed. Okay, the judges, they're flawed. They're humans, right? Uh, number two, um, their power comes from God, but their methods and their motives don't always necessarily come from God. And then number three, their achievements are temporary, right? Their achievements don't last. One, two, three. Flawed, power comes from God, methods and motives don't. Their achievements are temporary. So, Number one, the judges are all flawed. Go figure. These flaws will be more important in some uh, rather than others. And because the book of Judges is like this downward spiral, uh, you may know that the judges themselves actually become more flawed the further into the book you go. Um, and here's the weird part. I feel like when I was a little kid and I was going to Sunday school, like I and think like eight-year-old JJ here. Um, when I was a little kid, uh, I read the stories of like, I heard about the stories of like Gideon and Samson, and like they were, they, they were kind of like these heroes, right? They were these epic heroes who won great battles, and they were the, they were the good guys, right? They were the heroes of the story. Um, and I'm not saying my Sunday school teachers were trying to lie to me or anything. I think they were trying to do the best with what they had, um, <clears throat> had to work with. But I've read Judges since Sunday school, and Gideon and Samson were not good dudes. Like, Gideon, seriously, Gideon murders a bunch of Israelites who don't help him fight against Midian, and he builds an idol that the people worship instead of God. Uh, Samson, I mean, reading the story now as an adult, clearly just does whatever he wants. Like, he's a womanizer, he kills anybody who gets in his way, um, and for most of the story, he could care less about the God who actually, like, gave him the strength that he has, right? Um, and... These are two of the more extreme examples, um, but they all have character flaws of some kind, even like Ehud. I like Ehud because he's the left-handed judge, right? And I'm left-handed, so I always thought he was cool. Um, he operates as an assassin. His whole job is like to assassinate people. Um, Jephthah, he's a killer who is so clearly does not understand the heart of God that he offers his own daughter as a sacrifice to God for a victory that he accomplishes. God didn't want that, right? He doesn't know the God that he's making the sacrifice to. Ultimately, you can boil down all these flawed actions to this repeated phrase. All of these judges, they're trying to do what is right in their own eyes. They're trying to do what is right in their own eyes, which brings us into trait number two. These judges were empowered by God, but their methods and motives were not always in alignment with God's methods and motives. Now, what you're going to read this week, right? Gesundheit, by the way. Um, what you're going to read this week is that every time God selects a judge, there's this kind of description of like, um, or promise uh, that God is going to be with them. He's going to go with them into battle, or his spirit is going to like uh, come upon this person, uh, is going to rest on this judge, and is going to give them power, whether it's like physical power or courage or just like this war-winning strategy or something like that. However, across the board, pretty much every judge's tenure involves them killing or mutilating a ridiculous amount of people. Um, and some of them use their power to exert control over or get revenge on their fellow Israelites. And thankfully... While these stories are epic, you know, I think the book of Judges does a really good job of framing it all in this context of like, something's wrong. 
Like, like the author does a good job of painting this picture. Like, this is not a good world to live in. Like, even with the judges here, like, something's wrong. It's not the way things are supposed to be. Which brings us to our, our, our final trait, trait number three. Um, the victories of the judges, they're temporary, right? They don't last. God saves his people over and over, yes, but it's not lasting. Something needs to change. This entire time period is marked by this constant cycle of conquest and death, punctuated by short periods of peace. And it's actually the opposite of how God wanted it to go down, right? One short period of war and then a lasting peace and a nation that shows the other nations what it looks like to live in communion with the God of the universe. Because, and this is gonna be so important to our, our third and final main point, the judges were fighting battles and wages war, waging wars against people, right? <clears throat> Their battles were against flesh and blood. God's war was and has always been against sin, right? God was looking to eradicate sin from Canaan and establish a holy, set-apart kingdom in which he was the ruler. And now we come to our final point in our study in Judges, right? The kingdom without a king. Four times uh, in Judges, this phrase is stated, there was no king, there was no king, there was no king in Israel at that time. Now, <clears throat> Bible scholars, they all agree that uh, the book of Judges was probably written during the time period when Israel actually had a king, this is later on, um, probably during the reign of King David. And, um, and so it's possible, um, it's entirely possible that, uh, that to infer that this line, this, there was no king in Israel, was included in Judges as like a bit of like monarchy propaganda, right? Like, yeah, back when there was no king, things were really bad. Isn't it great that we have a king now? We should all love the king a lot. Um, and, and that's possible, and to some extent, the author uh, would be right. Like, things were a lot better under some of the Israelite kings. Um, but I think it's so cool that God allows this phrase to be in here and allows it to be repeated four times, because in the context of the entire Bible, this phrase has huge, lasting meaning that is as relevant to us today, right now, as it was to the Israelites who read it 3,000 years ago. See, the judges, they were not perfect rulers, right? Um, the peace they brought didn't last. Even the Israelite kings that we're gonna read about in a few weeks, they couldn't bring a lasting peace either. Right? All these judges and kings, they won wars, they subjugated Israel's enemies, they instituted reforms, but none of them lasted. Because there was one enemy that always, always came back. An enemy that no army could overwhelm, right? that no city wall could defend against, and no amount of strategy or strength of arms could subdue. They couldn't defeat sin. Right? And sin ran unchecked like a rampant cancer, infecting society after society, culture after culture, until one day a new judge showed up. Right? Not just a judge, this was the king. Okay? A king like any other king before him, and he established a new kingdom unlike any other that had ever existed before and unlike any that will exist after. And his kingdom was not built by killing people, but by dying for them. Right? Not by conquering people, but by conquering sin and death. He was the culmination of the plan God had from the beginning, and he was God himself in human form, and his name was Jesus. Right? Paul summarizes his mission uh, perfectly in uh, 1 Timothy 1.15, right? when he says, The saying is true and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. 
It's been the same goal from the very beginning to save us, his people, through Jesus. God has invited us into a new kingdom. We call it the church, right? And in this kingdom, we can find true fellowship with one another. We can share each other's joys and sorrows because Jesus showed us how to live selflessly, not selfishly, right? We can find joy in the midst of sadness. We can find peace in the embrace of the Father. We can find freedom, true freedom, from the, from the ultimate slave master, which is our own sin. We're invited into a lasting kingdom that cannot be destroyed. And we can say confidently, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Because we have an inheritance beyond this broken world, right? Um, Our king defeated death. And although the church isn't perfect because it's full of imperfect people, right? Uh, We have something the people during the time of the judges didn't. Jesus tells us what that is in John 14, verses 16 through 17. He says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. See, unlike the time of the judges when God gifted his Spirit to like one person to accomplish mighty deeds, in this new kingdom, any who confess Jesus as their king, receive the free gift of the Holy Spirit. And that gift allows each of us, right, to accomplish impossible things. Here's a sad truth, church. Our world is super interested in the kingdom, right? They look at all the things, all the great things that Jesus said, and they're like, oh yeah, that stuff, that actually sounds really good. I want that, right? I want that. But just like the Israelites, they say, well, I want the promised land, but I also want to do it as right in my own eyes. I want the kingdom, but I don't think I want the king. And church, the kingdom is nothing without the king. Okay, without him, all of this is meaningless. We want justice, right? We want love, we want identity, we want truth. Without a king to define those things, they're all just rhetoric, right? When we all try to define them ourselves, we get 10 billion different answers because there's 10 billion different people on the planet, right? We saw it then, What's right, and we, and we, I mean, we see it even, even too, just like what's right in my eyes is what's wrong in your eyes half the time. We saw it then and we see it today. It, it does always just blow my mind um, how often people in like our day and age think we're so much better than people in the past. Um, you know, we read about the Israelites entering Canaan and immediately like whoring after other gods. That's what the Bible actually uses, this term whoring after other gods, right? <clears throat> and we think, man, what were they doing? What in the world were they, were they thinking? All the while, we ignore the fact that all the same brokenness still exists today. Not not in some far-off, third-world, distant country, right? Like, right here, right now. Two major Canaanite gods um, that are featured heavily in this text, Molech and uh, Asherah. Molech is typically considered the god, uh, the Canaanite god who they would perform child sacrifices to. Um, And then Asherah was like the goddess of, like, sex and fertility, like an Aphrodite-type archetype, right? Um, Church, do you guys think that the worship of Molech and Asherah has disappeared in the last 4,000 years? Because it hasn't. It just looks a little different now, right? For instance, what do you think Molech appreciate? How do you think Molech appreciates the fact that in 2020, 930,000 abortions were performed in the U.S., right? 
Or maybe do we wonder if, if Asherah loves the fact that the human trafficking industry made more than $32 billion last year, and that most of that money went into the sex trade, fueled primarily by the pornography industry, which made $12 billion last year. Church, we are not better than them. We're not. We're still sinners saved by grace who are still living in a world where it isn't just acceptable, but it is encouraged to do what is right in our own eyes, and people are still suffering for it, just like they were at the time of the judges. So then what do we learn from judges, right? It's that we got to have a king, and there's only one king who's worthy of our obedience. We need to choose right now and every day moving forward that we don't want the kingdom without the king. Right? Because we know what that looks like. Judges is this tragedy of failure after failure to put God on the throne of our lives rather than ourselves. Right? Jesus showed us a better way to live, a way to be set apart and show the world, I'm part of a kingdom where those who mourn are comforted. Right? Where the hungry and the thirsty are fed living water. A kingdom of mercy and peace that will last forever. The simple answer to what is going on in our world right now is that our world is a kingdom without a king where everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. But there is a kingdom with a king. And so the challenge today is choose his kingdom or yours. I'm gonna invite the band up now. Um, I know a lot of what I've said the past 35 minutes has been extremely uh, like depressing because Judges is, uh, can be a very uh, sad book to read, but it's also full of hope. And I want to leave you guys with hope this morning. I'm going to read a passage. Uh, this comes from the book of Isaiah, still Old Testament. Um, we read this uh, passage a lot around Christmas time because it talks about the coming of Jesus. And I want to talk about, through this passage, I think we get a beautiful picture of what the kingdom looks like, right? The kingdom that not only that we, is coming, but the kingdom that we get to live in right now, that we get to make a reality by following after Jesus. This is that kingdom. So I'm going to read that as the band is getting prepped, and then we're going to sing some more songs. So just listen to these words. Let them just kind of flow over you. If you need to close your eyes just to really concentrate, um, just listen up. This is really good. So from Isaiah 9, we read, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day in Midian. We're going to read about that in Judges this week. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Let's pray. God, we want to be part of this kingdom. God, we know what it looks like to be in a kingdom without a king. And God, I know that there's hurt in this room from a kingdom without a king. And God, we know the only way to be part of that kingdom is to 
give it all to you, to put you on the throne, to say, God, I trust you, I have faith in you, because you are a good God, a God who conquered not by killing, but by dying for us. And a God who's sitting on the throne of mercy and says, I love you despite all your failures, despite all your follies. I want to be with you. And Christ has paid that price. So I pray, Lord, that we would be a people who would look at that price paid and we would say, God, I want to be with you. Because I see what this looks like. I see the chaos of the rest of this world, this world without a king. And I want to be part of something better. God, I pray that you'd be that king. Thanks for listening to today's teaching from Northwest Hills Community Church. We hope you find ways to apply the gospel to your life. And be sure to check out our website, nwhills.com, where you'll find ways to engage with us. And if you're able, we'd love to see you at church next Sunday. Thanks again for listening.